God's prophet and presence have left the land. He has gone silent. Baal, it seems, has his own king on Israel's throne. Abundance has become famine. Plenty has become want. Blessing has become curse. Three years of drought have proven Baal an impotent king. And Ahab is growing desperate. A short distance away in Sidon, Yahweh's prophet eats the bread of a Gentile widow forged from a jar and a jug that never run out. He eats with her son who he raised from the dead. And to him comes God's word. The age of famine must end. Baal's time is up. God must show himself superior to all other gods. Meanwhile, Obadiah, one of Ahab's trusted administrators, feeds a hundred of Yahweh's prophets that he's hidden away in caves that they might escape the edge of the sword as Jezebel, Ahab's wife, seeks to eliminate God's prophets. This is the stage that we find ourselves on in 1 Kings and chapter 18. And what we learn is that God has every one of them, Elijah, Ahab, and Obadiah, right where he wants them. That's sort of the nested idea for this particular section. It's a transition section, so it's a little awkward. We're just going to look at the first 20 verses of 1 Kings 18. But a phrase you can put in your pocket to think about is that God has everybody right where he wants them, including his enemies. And once more, that big overarching idea in chapter 17 and 18 is the world works according to the word of the Lord. Life and death are in his hands. It's what we see over and over again. It's God's word that is the main character in these chapters that is moving all of these events along to the end of demonstrating his glory and his superiority, his position as the one true God. With that in mind, uh, let's read the whole passage together, verses 1 through 20, pray, and then begin by looking at these characters together this morning. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 18. <laughs> chapter 18, verse 1. I think I mixed those up. You guys get it. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, 
go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land and to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and the mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. And Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And Elijah answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, Behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, He is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, Go, tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you, I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's servants, prophets, by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the balls. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would speak through it to us. Meet us during this time this morning. Focus our attention on you. Teach us to love one another and you more deeply. Reveal to us our sins that we might repent of them afresh. Key us in on your grace so we might be led to thanksgiving and rejoicing. Remind us to keep our eyes set on the things that are above, 
because our lives are hidden with Christ Jesus, our Lord, who redeems us from the grave, from the wrath we deserve, and unto eternal life. Speak to us, Lord. We listen. Enable us to digest the words of life that you feed to us this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God has everyone right where he wants them, and that includes this false god, Baal. Again, chapter 17 and 18 have been conspiring together to demonstrate once and for all, it is not Baal who rules and reigns over all things, but God, Yahweh, Elijah's God, the only true God. And remember, Baal is considered the Lord of fertility. He's a Canaanite God. And so he was thought to ride upon the storms and bring the rains that brought fruit to the ground and to the womb. And it is to Baal that Israel has turned their hearts. In fact, they haven't just sort of assimilated Yahwism or their religion together with the Canaanite religion. They're, they're seeking to replace Yahweh with Baal. And what God wants to make crystal clear in these chapters is that Baal is powerless. He doesn't control the reins. But he alone makes it rain. And so he sends Elijah to Ahab to say, it's not going to rain except by my word. And here we are, it's been three years of drought, and now God says to Elijah, go and confront Ahab because I am going to make it rain. He doesn't just make it rain right away. Did you notice that? Well, why is that? And it's because he wants absolutely no confusion about who it is that is bringing the rain. And Canaanite thought the idea was that Baal was rider of the storms, he would bring fertility. But then when the dry season came, he would submit himself to the god of death, Mot, for a while. He would be imprisoned in the realm of the dead. Until the goddess, Anat, came and brought him out of that prison and back to life. And the rains would return to the land. And so you can see what God wants to make clear is that that creative story is an untrue one. He doesn't want to leave any openings for the people of Israel who are worshiping this false god to say, ah, we knew, we knew Baal would return once more. He always comes back. Now, God's going to make it rain, but he's also going to make it clear that he's the one who dried up all the rain, and he's the one who made the rain come again. He is, in this section, setting up a showdown between himself and Baal. All of it is leading us to Mount Carmel, where Yahweh will announce his superiority fully and finally as he defeats Baal on Baal's mountain with fire. And rain. God has this false God right where he wants him. And he has the king of Baal right where he wants him. Ahab is 
getting desperate. Look at verse 2. Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over his household. Jump down to verse 5. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. Shows us that Ahab has become like his God, impotent, powerless. He, so some commentators, it's interesting, will say Ahab and, and Obadiah, they both actually had a cadre of soldiers with them when they were going out in their different directions, right? Kings don't travel alone. I find that hard to believe because the author stresses that they went out, well, you see, by himself in one direction went Ahab, and by himself in the other direction went Obadiah. They're alone. And it's important to note that this is unusual. Kings wouldn't go out alone. His trusted royal official over his household wouldn't typically travel alone. But food has become scarce enough, water has become scarce enough, that these two are reduced to playing the part of some of the lowliest servants. They're out looking to collect grass and hay for the war horses and the mules. Made me think of, do you remember the old UPS tagline? It might still be one, but they used to ask, what can brown do for you? Right? And the answer was supposed to be all kinds of things. And I was just sort of thinking about this, like, well, what can, what can Ball do for you? Nothing. Ahab, sort of like a peasant king at this point, searching for food. And we might think that at this juncture of his life, he would pause to consider his situation. Elijah the prophet had come and said there wouldn't be rain except by his word. I've continued to worship Baal and there's not been any rain. You might think he would consider that and repent. But what we discover is he does no such thing. Instead of identifying the troubles in Israel as the result of idolatry, he blames Elijah. Look at verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Elijah answered him, I have not troubled Israel, but you have Sort of a comical exchange, almost like children arguing, right? So you're a troubler of Israel. I know you are, but what am I? You're a troubler of Israel. I know you are, but what am I, right? What's happening here? Why couldn't they come up with better name calling than this? Well, the phrase troubler of Israel, it's not just incidental. It comes from an incident back in Joshua chapter 7. And this, this idea of a troubler of Israel, it's actually applied to Saul later on, but we're just, we're just going to think of it from Joshua chapter 7 and the story of Achan. 
Some of you may be vaguely familiar with it, so let me recount it for you once more. The people are at the front end of the conquest. They have just destroyed Jericho. And one of the prescriptions God lays out for them is that they are to destroy all of the city and all that is within the city. It's supposed to be a sort of offering to the Lord. It's it's like his holy plunder, if you will. Nobody is to take anything out of the city. And this guy Achan, at some point, thinks to himself, this cloak is awesome. And hey, there's some silver and gold here. Nobody's looking. And so he snatches that that stuff up and he takes it back to his tent and digs a hole in the ground and puts it in there. And God doesn't know. Nobody knows. We're good. Well, what happens is is the beginning of chapter 7 in Joshua, the people go out and they they sort of scout out the enemy that they're supposed to fight next. They go, oh, there's, there's not very many of them. We only need to take a couple thousand of us and we will overwhelm them very easily. And what happens is, is they get routed. And Joshua is beside himself. When the people come back, he he is just undone. And he says in Joshua 7, verse 8, Oh Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and will cut us off. They'll cut off our name from the earth. and, And what will you do for your great name? He's just desperate. And I love the Lord's response to him in verse 10. Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. And he tells Joshua the reason for their defeat is that someone among them has taken his holy plunder. He disobeyed his word as it relates to Jericho. And they cast some lots, and eventually Achan is identified as the one who had harbored the Lord's plunder. He admits his guilt. And then we read in verse 25 of Joshua chapter 7, And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And there at a valley that will be called the Valley of Trouble, Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. To call someone a troubler of Israel is to identify them with Achan, and at this point in their history with Saul. A troubler brings evil on the people by displeasing God. So now you sort of get the sense Ahab is saying, the curse that's come on the land isn't because of my idolatry. It's because of you, Elijah. And Elijah probably has to be beside himself, just a little incredulous. What do you mean, man? You have abandoned the commandments of God, and you have gone after false gods. You've committed sins of inaction by not doing what God has called you to do, and you've committed sins of action by doing the opposite of what God has asked you to do. The covenant curses are spelled out in Deuteronomy. What's happening to you and to all the people is because of your sins. We read this interaction, I think we sit back and go, man, Ahab is so thick. How could he be so obstinate and just stupid? Doesn't he see it? 
And then we get struck with a little bit of humility and consider our own lives. And we go, man, how often have I not seen it? Been so quick to blame other people for the results of my sin. How often have I been sort of blind to my sins of inaction? Or even justified my sins of action? There is a sort of tendency in us since the garden to blame shift. The woman made me do it. Well, the devil made me do it. Somebody else's fault. There's a little Ahab in all of us, isn't there? So, how do we get it out? Humble repentance. Humble repentance. We never get beyond the need to repent. Friends, let's not plug our ears in pride like Ahab. Pride for the Christian is dumb. It doesn't make any sense. Because by virtue of being a Christian, you are saying, I'm not all that impressive. I don't have my life together. And I actually don't need to defend myself because I am far worse than you would ever believe. So like, when we are confronted with our own sin, whether we figure it out ourselves or somebody else brings it to our attention, we shouldn't think, that's impossible. I couldn't be culpable. We should think, that seems, that seems right. <laughs> like, yeah, I am a sinner. And it shouldn't wreck our worlds. Because we recognize as Christians that we are sinners saved by grace. Yes, our fundamental identity is in Christ. We, we are saints. We've been made new. But the flesh persists. And we recognize that we are not perfect. Christians don't plug our ears in pride. We take responsibility. We repent quickly. We confess our sins and enjoy the forgiveness of Christ. You don't have to defend yourself. The Lord knows you and he loves you. If you are in Christ, the Lord loves you. God the Father loves you like he loves Jesus Christ. That's amazing. Because he's always loved Jesus Christ. Before there was time. One of the things Spurgeon says is that you can easily trace back when your love for God began. But you can't trace the beginning of Jesus' love for you. The source of that stream lies in eternity past. When you recognize you are loved and accepted in Christ like this, you can faithfully and happily confess and repent of your sins. You don't have to defend yourself. That's good news. So don't be like Ahab. Forsake your pride and your sins. If you're a non-Christian, Ahab's obstinance has a lesson for you too. You can hear God's word for years and years and not see clearly. And stand opposed 
to the Lord. Friend, it's because the God of this world has blinded your mind. The only way for you to understand God's word is for God to give you faith. Pray that the Holy Spirit would give you understanding this morning. Turn from your sins and to God in repentance. God has Ahab right where he wants him. He's going to show himself supreme over Baal and Ahab. And he has Elijah right where he wants him. Look back at verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. What we see is that God's word moves Elijah. God's people move to the rhythm of God's word. You see it back there in chapter 17, God's word comes to Elijah and it moves him to go to Ahab and pronounce judgment and then his word takes him to the brook and then God's word commands ravens to feed Elijah by the brook and then God commands Elijah to go to Zarephath where God commands a widow to feed him and then God's word commands those jars to stay full, the jar and the jug to stay full and then it is by God's word that The young boy is raised to life. And what do we learn at the end of 17? The woman, the widow, says to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. And here we have the word coming to Elijah again and moving him once more. God's word moves Elijah from one place to another. And that's how God's word should work in the lives of his people. God's word should move us. We should act always in obedience It was word. I do think it's easy to look at Elijah the prophet and to paint his ministry in happy hues of victory as if he just moved from one triumph to the next. And we we think of him and we think of the raising of the widow's son and of the Mount Carmel story that we're making our way to slowly but surely. We'll get there next week. We think of him swept up by chariots of fire. But the reality of his ministry is there's a lot of suffering and difficulty. His obedience to God doesn't bring him into sort of a state of comfortable bliss. It warrants for him rejection and hardship. He's, you know, door-dashing ravens by a brook. He's staying with Gentile widows. There's famine for three years in the land. He's a wanted man hunted by Jezebel. I mean, in the next chapter, in chapter 19, he's going to be so exhausted with it all that he's going to lay down and ask God to take his life. Obedience to God is difficult. It can bring us hardship. And obedience to God is always worth it. God always gives to us more than our obedience costs us. I think we make a mistake if we look at all of these situations Elijah is in and just go, man, that was really, really hard. 
think it's better for us to key in on grace. What is God's graciousness to use Elijah in the first place, to call him as his prophet? When Elijah is by the brook, it is God's grace to hide him from his enemies. When Elijah is hungry, it is God's grace to feed him with the ravens. When he's with the widow, it's God's graciousness to him. It is God's grace that sustains and empowers Elijah for his ministry. Every step of the way, even when it is difficult, God is supplying everything that Elijah needs. Friends, this is true for us also. God supplies all of our needs every step of the way. Whether we find ourselves in green pastures, happy, or in widows' houses, or by the brook, God supplies our needs. Do you believe that God has you right where he wants you? And will take you where he wants you next? Do you believe that he is able to sustain your life? Friends, God will fulfill his purposes for your life. Feast on his daily grace. We have been given the grace of God. It comes to us daily. It comes to us just commonly. He sustains our lives. You have oxygen in your lungs right now because of his grace. Here as we're gathered together, we get to enjoy the ordinary means of grace as we hear him speak to us through his word. As we feast upon the body and blood of Christ together at the Lord's table, as we pray, these are God's graces to us to sustain our lives and to empower us moving forward. Sometimes I think we have a truncated view of grace as if it is just pardon. And it is that. God's grace to us is his pardon. He gives us the opposite of what we deserve. We deserve death and hell, and because of Christ's death and resurrection for us, we get heaven. We're pardoned for our sins. But grace is not merely pardon, it is also power. God's grace sustains us and moves us forward. When we come together week after week after week, we are receiving God's grace and encouragement to move forward in faithfulness as we go out into the world, into our workplace, and into our families. We're able to be sufficient for those things because of the sufficiency that God has given to us. He gives us more grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. And so we can walk confidently by faith day after day, one foot in front of the other, because God gives us grace. We should be a really happy people. Whether we are serving God in palaces or in caves. Do you see that in verse 4? And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. Well, imagine if you're one of these hundred prophets that this is a great living situation. You didn't get on uh, VRBO, is it Verbo? Or Airbnb, 
You didn't, you know, you're not booking at the Hilton for a few years. You're staying in what I assume is a dank cave. And dank used negatively there. I think sometimes people say that dank in a positive way now. I'm not sure. Uh, it's not great. And they're there for three years. Depending on Obadiah, who's playing the part of ravens and a widow, by bringing them bread and food. It is, the, the irony is sort of delicious, isn't it? Ahab is out searching for food to, to feed his animals. And his royal administrator, Obadiah, is feeding God's prophets right under his nose. God can provide for his people. It probably wasn't fun to be in the cave, but, you know, some lessons can only be learned in the cave. One of those lessons is that God carries out his will in the world all on his own. He doesn't need you or me or prophets. He's quite capable, thank you. And yet, and this is the encouraging part and the freeing part, even though God doesn't need you or your abilities at all, he wants you. Decides to use you the way he's made you. He designed you with purposes in mind. Love that in Ephesians 2. You can read it this afternoon, those first 10 verses at the end. God has prepared good works for you to walk in. It's exciting. I think the second thing that they learn here, or that we can learn, is that God is at work in the secret places in the world. These prophets are hidden from all earthly eyes. Nobody knows they're there except themselves, Obadiah, and the Lord. And it might appear from a glance at their social media and their news networks that Baal is reigning in Israel. And yet, here he is where we see he's at work at work in these caves, sustaining his people. He's at work in the small house of an insignificant widow. He's at work ordering the whole world according to his holy word. He can do all of his holy will. None can stand in his way. I think to you probably staying in caves that long, learn a special dependence upon the Lord. Friends, when you find yourself in a cave, look for grace there. Some of the most intimate times you will have with the Lord will only come in the deepest sorrows in the thickest blackness. There are some comforts of God that can't be experienced in a castle, but only in a cave. Some grace only comes to us when our eyes are dim, when our bellies are empty, when our lips are cracked, and we feel as if we might welcome death itself. It is in the weakness of the cave we find living water from the rock most satisfying. 
It is at the end of ourselves we find God's grace most necessary and empowering. It is in the cellar of affliction we find God's best wine for us. God will meet you in the cave. You don't have to be afraid of the dark. God has these prophets right where he wants them. And he has them where he wants them because he had Obadiah where he placed him. Obadiah is set firmly inside the Ahab administration. Again, verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 3, Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. That's his household as a royal administrator. Now Ahab feared the Lord greatly. Obadiah risks his life to hide these prophets. He's doing a good job for Ahab and he's remaining faithful to Yahweh. He's able to do this because he has his mind set not on earthly things, but on things that are above. He has his heart set ultimately on the Lord his God. Therefore, he's able to do a good job and he's able to risk his life for what is right and faithful to the Lord. I can't help but read this and, and think of, of Christ himself. Obadiah hides prophets in caves so they can escape unrighteous wrath towards them. And the Lord Jesus hides his people in himself to rescue us not from the wrath of a wicked king, but wrath that we deserve. Jesus Christ feeds us not with bread and water, but with his body and blood. Jesus didn't just risk his life to save us, church. No, he gave it. He laid down his life for his people. We know that he took it up again. Jesus Christ went into the cave of death and then rolled away the stone on that resurrection morning so that you and I never have to be afraid of the dark, so that we never have to fear even death itself. Jesus' resurrection from the grave vindicates his ministry, and it teaches us this important lesson. God's grace will not run out when we die. His grace will come to us and take us out the other side of the tomb. God's grace will continue to come to you and me, Christian, forever and ever without end. It is incredible. Obadiah risks for what is right. Makes me think of Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. 
because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Obadiah believes the promises of God, believes the word of God, and lives faithfully. He risks for what is right. We should not be afraid to take risks for what is right. Notice also Obadiah is used to set up this meeting between Elijah and Ahab, which is going to bring about this final royal rumble, this showdown at the end of the chapter. But he doesn't get there right away. There's this big section of our text from verse 7 to verse 16 that records a conversation between Elijah and Obadiah, and it's a little strange. Obadiah falls down and says, is that you, Elijah? And Elijah says, it's me. Go tell Ahab that I'm here. And Obadiah like trips over himself because he does not want to do this. He's like, no, 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 no. I, 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 hey, I follow the Lord. I believe the Lord's word. You're his prophet. I don't want to go to Ahab and tell him that you're here because he'll kill me maybe. Like if I show up to Ahab and tell him, hey, guess what? Met Elijah today, crazy thing. You want to go, you want to go see him? He wants you to, to meet him. And then I come back and you're not here, Elijah. And let's face it, uh, you have a history of moving quickly, okay? Uh, if I come back and you're not here, I'm dead. He says it over, don't you know that I've hid these hundred prophets and if I'm dead, then I can't keep feeding them. And, you know, really it's not about me, it's about, it's about them. I can't go and tell Ahab this thing. Would you just sentence me to death by asking me to do that? And Elijah says, as the Lord of hosts, that's the Lord of armies, lives before whom I stand, I will show myself to him today. And so Elijah reminds Obadiah that yes, we are at war with Baal and Baal's king. But our God is the Lord of hosts. His army is greater than Ahab's. He will bring his purpose to its appointed end. I will meet Ahab, fear not. Believe my word. Obadiah has a decision. He has believed God's word, and the, the question now is, will he continue to believe it? Isn't that a question that comes to all of us? Every day we have to choose to continue to believe God, to continue to take him at his word. It's a simple thing, but it is profound. We see there in verse 16 that Obadiah obeys. He believes God's word. He sets up this meeting that sets up the showdown at Mount Carmel. Notice that though Obadiah's ministry is different from Elijah's, it takes no less courage. In fact, it requires a lot more tact. Elijah is this confrontational prophet. You know, there's a lion out there. Obadiah, more behind the scenes, just working faithfully. Friends, God uses both. He uses Obadiah's and Elijah's. Recall our scripture reading from 1 Corinthians 12 this morning. Paul reminds the church, you are the body of Christ. 
we're all different parts of the body. That whole idea when we, we say you join the church as a member, it's body language, right? That's why like if you lose an arm, you've been dismembered. All your members, every part of the body has an important function. There are toes and ears and eyes. And as Paul said, a body that's just an eye is, is a monster. It's gross. Now, all of us have an important part to play in the church and in the world for the glory of God. Some of us will be like Elijah, but, but many more of us will be like Obadiah. We need to remember that every part of the body is essential. There are no appendixes in the body of Christ. I think Obadiah is, should be, for many, many of you, one of the most encouraging characters you see in all of the Bible. He only shows up here, and then we never hear from him again. Obadiah was a common name. He's not the prophet that shows up later. Different guy. This is all we have of this Obadiah. But he's encouraging because he's not in full-time ministry at all, but he's working out in the real world for an unbelieving boss who worships false gods. And he has to figure out how to navigate both doing a good job and being faithful to the Lord, performing his duties and to refuse to bow down to the Baals. Friends, God has placed you where he wants you. He has you right where he wants you, and, and you can be faithful there. You need to, to fight the good fight of faith strategically where you are, like Obadiah. Working out in the world is not a, an excuse to become like the world or to just go, I can't do anything here. God gave Obadiah an ability to be clever and effective in his faithfulness to the Lord and in his faithfulness at his job. God will provide both to you. Pray about your work. God has called you there and placed you there. Be faithful where he has placed you. Use your resources and abilities against evil. And don't lose heart. Pray for God's help at your work. I mean, memorize Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Brothers and sisters, God has you right where he wants you. And he is working the whole world according to his word. Sometimes it might be discouraging. You might be tempted to be disheartened. But remember, the God of this age has blinded the mind of unbelievers. So keep being faithful. Keep praying. Keep sharing your faith with the hope that God will bring light that those who do not know him might believe. Keep walking by faith, 
knowing that there is a big showdown coming. That the Lord Jesus Christ is returning. That the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And that the church right now, odd as it may seem, is growing just like a mustard seed. God was at work in secret places and caves and he is at work all over the place now. Brothers and sisters, trust the Lord. Be faithful. Key in, not on your difficulties, but on the grace that's coming to you. God has you right where he wants you. He has he had Elijah where he wanted him. He had Ahab where he wanted him. He has Obadiah where he wants him. He has his prophets where he wants them. And he has you where he wants you. Maybe he'll move you somewhere else and when you get there, that's where he wants you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us grace that we might trust you more. We thank you that you sustain us day by day. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who was crucified in the place of his people, of all who will repent of sin and submit their lives to him. Thank you for saving us. Lord, we pray that you would not make us a people who just look back at the time we came to faith and confessed Christ as Lord, as if we only received grace on that day but that we would be a people who gather weekly, who, who get together during the week, who wake up in the morning hungry and thirsty for your word, ready to receive more and more grace from you. A people who listen to your word proclaimed because we want to receive your grace. A people who read your word because we want to receive your grace. We know that your law is sweeter than honey, that you have given to us the words of life. Lord, help us to take advantage of all the ways you give grace to us. Thank you for your generosity, your kindness, and your endless love for your people, for your Son, to whom we are joined by your Spirit, and in whose name we pray. Amen.